One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Chargers at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, November 6th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 49 and a half. Game Overview by Pappy. Austin Eckler is set up to succeed. The Chargers receivers are mispriced for their opportunity caused by injuries. The Falcons' backfield is likely to succeed cumulatively, but it's hard to predict how the work will be split. The Falcons' pass game pieces are all cheap. How Los Angeles will try to win. The 4-3 Chargers come into Week 9 off a much-needed bye as they struggle to get healthy. Despite battling injuries, Brandon Staley has kept his team in the hunt as they sit only a game back from division-leading Kansas City, KC holds the tiebreaker, and third in the wildcard spot. Staley must desperately want to make the playoffs after losing a win-or-go-home game against the Raiders last season as time expired, and receiving criticism for his decision-making after that game. The Chargers are still well-positioned to make the playoffs, but they are coming off an ugly home loss against a Seahawks team they were expected to beat. This group has had two weeks to chew on that performance and should be highly motivated in a type of game you have to win if you're going to be a playoff contender. The Chargers have played fast since Staley took over. They have the second fastest overall pace, playing quickly in all situations, and only slowing down slightly when ahead, 11th in pace. This is a team that wants to throw the ball, third highest pass play percentage, and keep defenses off balance with an up-tempo attack. Staley's offense revolves around Austin Eckler, who has found himself playing a unique position in the NFL. If Debo Samuel is a wide back, then Austin Eckler is a running receiver. Due to injuries at wide receiver, Eckler's previously robust passing game role has expanded, leading to him seeing a plain silly 28 targets across his past two games. Rested off a bye, with more injury concerns in the wide receiver room, there is every reason to think Eckler will remain the engine of this offense. The Falcons have been court jesters on defense, getting goofed on the ground, 26th in DVOA, and assaulted in the air, 30th in DVOA. The Falcons are giving up a generous 5.01 adjusted line yards, 29th, but the Chargers are sporting a puny 4.04 adjusted line yards on offense, 29th, which means they are likely to choose to attack the Falcons' defense, that is nothing but least resistance, through the air. Staley has no reason to stray from his usual plan of attack, an up-tempo passing offense that relies on Eckler as a wide receiver one by default, depending on the other healthy options. Falcons defensive coordinator Dean Pease's scheme has long been described as one of the most complicated in football, and while we should expect the Falcons defense to improve eventually, they are showing how many breakdowns are possible in a new scheme that isn't yet fully understood by the players. Expect the Chargers to attack in their usual aggressive manner, even with injuries limiting their wide receiver personnel. How Atlanta will try to win. The 4-4 Falcons find themselves in an interesting spot, as they certainly aren't performing like a playoff football team, but if things ended today, they would be hosting a postseason game. That's life in the NFC South, which is playing out like a division no one wants to win. If the Panthers could make an extra point, a team tanking for draft picks would be in first place. Alas, we did not receive such a meme-worthy gift. Instead, we are left with the Falcons in control of the division, who are being guided by second-year head coach Arthur Smith and his run-the-damn-ball mentality. Despite his outdated mindset, the Falcons have been surprisingly frisky on offense, scoring the second-most points, 200, in the NFC, behind only the Seahawks, 210. 
Midway through the season, the two highest scoring teams in the NFC will be the Seahawks and Falcons. Sounds like the title of a Yahoo Sports Bold Predictions puff piece written in May, but that is our reality. The Falcons have been using Tyler Algier and Caleb Huntley, plus Mariota, to carry the ball and have a real shot at getting Corderell, I'm always in the Millie Maker lineup, Patterson back from Anisco. Smith's war chest of ball carriers is full, and it's likely he utilizes a run-heavy game plan if things stay close. The Falcons play at a plodding pace, 31st overall, and never speed up, with their quickest tempo in any situation not cracking the top half of the league. Marcus Mariota has only been asked to throw 20, 19, 25, 14, 13, and 28 times in the Falcons' past six games. Limiting Mariota's pass attempts has been successful, as four out of those six contests resulted in wins. For all his faults, Arthur Smith has figured out that his best chance to win is running behind his strong offensive line, ranked ninth by PFF, shortening games, and limiting Mariota's ability to make mistakes. From the outside looking in, it seems obvious that the Falcons are the weakest division leader, but it won't feel that way in their locker room. Arthur Smith should have his team ready to come out hard at home against a banged-up opponent. Likeliest game flow. This game has a high total, 49.5, which makes sense. This is a contest of two offenses that are set up well to attack in their preferred method. The Chargers want to attack through the air, which is an area the Falcons have been unable to defend. The Falcons want to pound the ball, which has been the relative weakness of the Chargers' defense. The Falcons are dogs, plus three, at home with a similar record to their opponent, but the spread can't be considered fishy since it is generally accepted that the Chargers are the superior team. There is a good chance this game stays close, which should further fuel the game environment as neither team is likely to pull away early. The most likely game flow is a back-and-forth affair where both teams find success, and the winner is ultimately decided in the fourth quarter. Dolphins at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, November 6th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Miami was one of the most active teams at the trade deadline this year, shipping away Chase Edmonds and a first to the Broncos for the electric defensive end Bradley Chubb, and bringing in Jeff Wilson from the 49ers to rejoin Mike McDaniel's backfield. Bears GM Ryan Poles continued to perform as one of the league's top general managers at the deadline, dealing away disgruntled defensive mainstays in Roquan Smith and Robert Quinn in exchange for picks and Chase Claypool. The fact that Poles continues to invest in his second-year quarterback reaffirms their commitment to his development. Both injury reports are relatively sparse, with the Bears continuing their uncanny ability to remain healthy and the Dolphins' biggest appearance on the injury report being offensive tackle Teron Armstead this week. How Miami will try to win Two of the most glaring issues with the Dolphins this season have been a largely underperforming run game and a defensive front that has struggled to generate pressure in the backfield. Miami's 3.89 running back yards per carry this year ranks just 26th in the league, while their blitz-to-pressure differential ranks bottom five in the league, with the likes of the Giants, Cardinals, Steelers, and Rams. Furthermore, their 14.8% pressure rate ranks 29th through the midpoint of the season. The good news is that they addressed both shortcomings at the trade deadline, landing defensive end Bradley Chubb for Chase Edmonds and a first, and reuniting Jeff Wilson with Mike McDaniel's backfield. That said, from an offensive standpoint, this is a team that is absolutely feeding their top options, with Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle combining for 56.2% of the team's available targets, a 61.8% targets per route run rate, and a massive 67.3% of the team's available air yards. Furthermore, the team ranks third in the league in pass rate over expectation, 
if we include only the four games in which starting quarterback Tua Tagovailoa started and finished. All of that to say, Mike McDaniel is simplifying things on offense, knowing that his two most dynamic playmakers are his stud-wide receiver duo and feeding them the ball at a rate that matches their talent. Miami's offense has run at a below-average pace, ranking 22nd in overall pace of play, 17th in first-half pace of play, and 22nd in situation-neutral pace this season. With Chase Edmonds no longer in the fold, and with Jeff Wilson joining the team at the deadline on Tuesday, expect Raheem Mostert to serve as the unquestioned lead back, as he has been since week four, with Miles Gaskin and Wilson mixing in for a change of pace duties behind him. With the state of the offensive play calling and the design with a healthy Tua, we can't confidently project more than 18 to 22 running back opportunities for Mostert, even with the matchup clearly tilting expectations towards the ground. That matchup yields a well above average 4.56 net adjusted line yards metric against a Bears defense allowing a solid 4.86 running back yards per carry, which also just shipped off two defensive mainstays in the middle of their defense with Roquan Smith and Robert Quinn dealt at the deadline. Comparing the offensive efficiency of Mostert to the aforementioned pass catchers gives us a good glimpse into why McDaniel has called such a pass-heavy offense with Tua at quarterback. Mostert ranks 63rd in fantasy points per opportunity and 32nd in yards per touch, while Jalen Waddell and Tyree Kill rank 1st and 2nd in expected points added and 8th and 3rd in fantasy points per route run, respectively. There honestly isn't much left to say about Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell that hasn't been said. The pass-catching duo are two of the most dynamic and electric wide receivers in the league, which again reinforces the idea of getting the ball into their hands. The fact that Mike McDaniel is simply doing just that, as opposed to forcing things with an underperforming run game or forcing things to a dynamic pass-catching tight end, who is objectively and ostensibly less dynamic than Hill and Waddle, speaks volumes to his coaching ability in my opinion. It doesn't have to be difficult. Find ways to maximize the talent on the roster, which in this case means getting Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle the ball in space to maximize their per-touch upside. Trent Sherfield is technically the wide receiver three, but has maxed out at just a 67% snap rate this season, while tight end duties are split amongst the pass-catching Mike Gusecki and the blocking Durham Smythe and Hunter Long. That said, this offense goes as Hill and Waddle go. How Chicago will try to win The Bears were major movers at the deadline as well, shipping away interior defensive mainstays Roquan Smith and Robert Quinn and adding wide receiver Chase Claypool. Over the previous two weeks, the Bears have averaged 31 points per game after averaging just 15.5 over their first six games. They quite literally have doubled their offensive output, and it's not all small sample size noise as the Bears continue to move towards opening up their offense to maximize the talent they have as opposed to attempting to mask their deficiencies. A week after the team totaled 17 pass or field rush attempts on first down against the Patriots, Chicago dialed up 11 more pass or field rush attempts on first down against the Cowboys. Furthermore, two of the team's three three and outs last week came via possessions that utilized first down rushes up the middle. All of that to say, this offense is becoming more dynamic as the season progresses, shifting away from trying to mask a poor offensive line and towards attempting to stay ahead of the sticks and maximizing the talent available to them. So, While we can still expect elevated rush rates, this team is still dead last in pass rate over expectation and overall pass rate, we should consider this offense one that will be experimenting with how to best operate with a mobile and dynamic quarterback throughout the remainder of the season. David Montgomery continues to dominate the snaps in this Chicago backfield, but the actual split in running back opportunities has been almost identical between Montgomery and Khalil Herbert over the previous two weeks. 33 for Montgomery to 32 for Herbert, which makes sense considering Montgomery's modest efficiency numbers this season, he ranks 54th in true yards per carry and 34th in yards per touch, 
compared to 6th in true yards per carry and 5th in yards per touch for Herbert. Khalil Herbert has continued to play himself into more usage, which I expect to continue as the season progresses. Furthermore, we're starting to see Chicago utilize Fields more on designed runs as opposed to earlier in the season when the majority of his carries came via scrambles. In total, expect an elevated number of rush attempts, that's the Bears, spread amongst Montgomery, Herbert, and Fields. The pure rushing matchup yields an average 4.325 net adjusted line yards metric against the Dolphins' defense allowing 3.78 yards per running back carry. That does not bode well for David Montgomery here. Alpha wide receiver Darnell Mooney and tight end Cole Komet have been the only players to see consistent snap rates in the pass game, which has meant about as much as a serial killer's promise to this point. Mooney has just one game with more than a modest six targets, 12 targets against Washington in week six, while Komet has seen no more than four targets in a game all season. Komet finally scored his first touchdown of the season last week on a 10-yard strike from Fields in the fourth quarter, the first touchdown between the two the entire year. This is quite simply an extremely low-volume pass offense, with Fields maxing out at just 27 pass attempts. Chase Claypool is highly unlikely to see a full complement of snaps, having been acquired at the deadline, leaving the offense in familiar territory with nobody outside of Mooney and Komet expected to see near every down rolls in Week 9. Expect Claypool and Keel Harry, Equinemius St. Brown, and Dante Pettis to filter through behind Mooney in some capacity, with Velas Jones likely to see a handful of snaps as well. Nothing here is overly exciting from a fantasy perspective. Likeliest Game Flow Neither defense should be expected to clamp down on the opposing offenses, leaving this game environment largely open to be driven by each offense. What I mean by that is this. Due to the composition of each offense, this game is highly likely to go as the offensive play calling goes. We know how Miami is likeliest to attack, with heavy emphasis on getting the ball to their top playmakers in Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle. Chicago presents an offense with a little more assumptions baked in. Can we accept dynamic early down play calling as the norm moving forward? Will the Bears continue an offensive pace that literally doubles their production over the first six weeks of the season? While the answer to the latter question is almost definitely no, I think we have to assume this offense will continue searching for the most optimal way to utilize the dynamic abilities of Justin Fields with an emphasis on exploration throughout the remainder of this season as the team prepares for 2023 and beyond. The addition of Claypool only backs up that assertion. As such, this game brings some sneaky potential should the Bears continue leaning into what they do have as opposed to reverting back to trying to hide what they don't. That said, we still have to consider the Bears a wide range of potential outcomes with 6 weeks of just 15.5 points per game and only 2 weeks of 31 points per game, leaving the game environment with a relatively wide range of potential outcomes as well. Panthers at Bengals Kickoff Sunday, November 6th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 42.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Panthers running back Chuba Hubbard returned to a limited practice Wednesday after missing Week 8 with an ankle injury. Jamar Chase is likely to remain out for the Bengals after avoiding injured reserve with a hip injury. All four cornerbacks to play meaningful snaps this season are currently on the injury report, with Mike Hilton, Chidobe Awuzie, Trey Flowers held out on Wednesday, and Eli Apple returning to a limited practice after missing Week 8. The Bengals' pass offense should be highly concentrated amongst T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd, with the nickel position, Miles Hartfield, the clear path of least resistance away from J.C. Horn and Dante Jackson. This game environment very likely goes as Joe Burrow goes, considering the Panthers are highly unlikely to push the envelope on their own. How Carolina will try to win 
It's remarkable what the departure of Matt Rule and the insertion of a competent NFL quarterback has done for these Panthers over the previous two games. A convincing 21-0 win over the reeling Buccaneers and an overtime loss to the Falcons mired by kicking miscues. Walker, a previous MVP in the XFL, has provided enough spark to this offense to remove the one-dimensionality shown over the first six games of the season. Look, all the jokes flying around the dark web about the team getting better without Christian McCaffrey are hogwash. This team improved top to bottom once Rule left town and Walker entered as the starting quarterback. That said, we should expect the Panthers to run a balanced offense for as long as they are able to do so, with the primary identity of this team stemming from the run game. Their offense has run primarily from 11 personnel over the previous two weeks, PRE, post-rule era, with DJ Moore and second-year pro Terrace Marshall operating as the only near-every-down players. Expect LaVisca Chenault and Shai Smith to mix in at wide receiver in 11, with Ian Thomas and Tommy Tremble splitting duties almost down the middle at tight end. Finally, running back Chuba Hubbard returned to a limited practice on Wednesday after missing Week 8, which should force a near-timeshare at the position even considering Donta Foreman's breakout performance a week ago, particularly since Foreman mustered a good, not great, 68% snap rate with only Spencer Brown to back him up. As I mentioned before, I expect this backfield to return to a timeshare once Chuba Hubbard returns to the lineup, something that could happen this week with Hubbard back to a limited practice following one missed game. The Panthers are completely comfortable running a balanced offense for as long as it is working, and or they are allowed to, checking into Week 9 with a 24th-ranked pass rate over expectation value this season. Their 59.07% overall pass rate ranks 19th, while their ridiculously low 49.70% pass rate over the previous three weeks would rank 28th if extrapolated over the entire season. That should give us a projectable range of outcomes of 14-18 to running back opportunities for Foreman and 12-16 to for Hubbard assuming Hubbard returns. The matchup on the ground yields a comfy 4.68 net adjusted line yards metric against a Bengals defense allowing just 20.8 DK points per game to the position. DJ Moore has experienced a season resurgence with PJ Walker at quarterback, putting up his two best games of the season with Walker over the previous two weeks. He saw target counts of 11 and 10 in those two games, scoring a touchdown in each and breaking 100 yards receiving courtesy a 62-yard Hail Mary in the final moments of the game last week. From the perspective of fantasy utility, nobody outside of Moore is seeing enough volume on this run-first offense to be a reliable source of fantasy production. That said, second-year pro Terrace Marshall has been elevated to a near-every-down wide receiver with the departure of Robbie Anderson earlier this season. Furthermore, he set a season high with nine targets last week in the back-and-forth affair, meaning the upside is there in the right conditions, considering his hefty snap rate. I'll go out on a limb and say he will have one or two meaningful fantasy games over the rest of the season. Every other pass catcher on this offense operates in a situational role. The Bengals' pass defense is one that has overcome a relative lack of talent to hold opposing wide receivers to just 30.8 DK points per game, which ranks 8th in the league. That has been primarily due to the presence of defensive coordinator Lou Anarumo, whom I consider to be one of the top DCs in the league, from both schematic and adaptability perspectives. How Cincinnati will try to win. The recipe is clear for the Bengals as the season has progressed, nearly abandoning the run altogether to place games in their quarterback's hands. The Bengals have worked their way up to third in overall pass rate over expectation after starting the season more run-balanced carrying the highest pass rate over expectation value over the previous month of play. Their 73.53% pass rate over the previous three weeks ranks first in the league by a wide margin, 
and they've also picked up the pace of play as they've transitioned back to a more pass-heavy team. Along those lines, the absence of Jamar Chase was felt from the jump against the Browns on Halloween night, with wide receivers struggling to separate and consistent pressure disrupting drives regularly. Most notably, the Bengals continued operating almost exclusively from 11 personnel without Chase, with T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd operating as near-every-down players, Aiden Hurst pairing with Mitchell Wilcox for an exact share of the offensive snaps, and Mike Thomas, Trenton Irwin, and Trent Taylor combining for a 100% snap rate. I mentioned the struggles of the offensive line and, thusly, the offense as a whole against the Browns because the Panthers' defense operates in a similar fashion, with 4-3 base cover 2 principles intermixed with nickel and dime zone packages and moderate to heavy pressure generation up front through high and unique blitz packages. Lead back Joe Mixon has the largest delta between actual fantasy points and expected fantasy points this season amongst qualified running backs, underperforming to the tune of the league's 56th ranked yards per touch and 65th ranked true yards per carry, 3.3. His 27 red zone touches have provided all of three total touchdowns, but hey, at least he's seeing more targets with a ridiculously low 4.76 yards per target value. That said, he's been at 70% or higher in snap rate in all but one game this season, hitting 66% in that game. Boiled down, Mixon has an elite workload behind a poor offensive line, has poor evasion and elusiveness, and just one breakaway run all season. Not good, Bob. Samaje Pirine should continue operating as the primary change of pace back, capable in all facets of the offensive game plan. The pure rushing matchup on the ground yields an average 4.35 net adjusted line yards metric against a Carolina defense seeding 24.4 DK points per game to opposing backfields. In the absence of Jamar Chase, this pass game looks to be headed towards a T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd or bust range, considering these two were the only two to see the majority of the offensive snaps. T. Higgins may be widely considered an alpha alongside Chase by the fantasy community, but the numbers tell a different story. Higgins' 12.3 fantasy points per game in games without Chase puts him in wide receiver 3 territory from a fantasy points per game perspective compared to his 15.7 fantasy points per game value from a season ago. Tyler Boyd has largely been unaffected by the presence of Chase, consistently churning out borderline wide receiver 2, wide receiver 3 numbers regardless of Chase's status. Both Higgins and Boyd rank in the top 20 in fantasy points per game, with Boyd actually leading the way. 4th rank 2.52 compared to Higgins' 20th rank 2.04. The Panthers rank near the middle of the league in fantasy points allowed per game to tight ends and wide receivers, making the likely concentration amongst Higgins and Boyd somewhat appealing here. Hayden Hurst is the unquestioned pass-catching tight end on this offense, but his snap rates have fluctuated wildly depending on game flow and offensive game plan, which should theoretically keep him towards the upper range of snap rates this week, 70-80%. to Likeliest game flow. This game likely goes as Joe Burrow goes, with the Panthers completely content to adapt their attack based on what their opponent is forcing them to do. As in, the Panthers are highly unlikely to push this game environment on their own, but are more than willing and capable of opening things up if forced to do so. That leaves the path to fantasy goodness almost entirely in the hands of Burrow as the single player most likely to push the game environment. There's nothing on paper or in the matchup that suggests we should expect the Bengals to alter their now heavy pass rates, and Mixon has simply struggled too greatly this season to suddenly expect a resurgence in efficiency. Along the same lines of thinking, we have to continue to regard the Bengals' pass offense as one of the best in the league. Yes, they take a significant hit through the absence of Jamar Chase, 
with this team still has a capable and emerging quarterback, an above-average pass-catching tight end, and oodles of talent at wide receiver between T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd. That leaves me either wanting to stack this game up or leave it alone altogether, particularly considering the wide range of potential outcomes as far as the game environment goes. I think we'd be remiss not to consider Burrow plus Higgins plus Boyd a top potential stack on this ugly slate. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Packers at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, November 6th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 49.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Both Christian Watson and Alan Lazard have returned to limited practices after Lazard missed last week with a shoulder injury, and Watson was forced from the game with a concussion after just six offensive snaps. Josh Reynolds got the dreaded midweek downgrade on Thursday, going from limited on Wednesday to DNP on Thursday. DeAndre Swift returned to a limited practice Thursday after a DNP on Wednesday. Amon Ross St. Brown was excellent against zone coverage last season, which the Packers primarily based their defense off of. The Packers are likely to succeed offensively here, leaving the primary driving force for the game environment in the hands of the Lions. How Green Bay will try to win. Brian Gutekunst watched yet another trading window pass him by without a major move. Add it to the list of head-scratching non-moves since 2018 as Packers fans everywhere grow increasingly tired of the organization's malpractice. I say that as a diehard Packers fan. It feels as if the rebuild began in 2018 with its hiring, seemingly stretching a three-year plan into one that could take longer than a decade now. I digress. The current National Football League Packers have taken a keep-away, game-managing game plan to the extreme this season, playing at the league's fifth-slowest situation neutral pace, 29th-ranked overall pace of play, and 26th-ranked pace of play in the first half of games. They have paired that with the 12th-lowest pass rate over expectation, PROE, and a middle-of-the-pack overall pass rate, 16th ranked, 60.12%. That has come together to have the Packers averaging just 62.4 offensive plays run per game. Green Bay allows 21.6 points per game defensively, which, if you haven't caught on to by now, ranks in the middle of the league, 16th. Suffice it to say, Aaron Rodgers is basically the only thing holding this team together right now, as most metrics paint the Packers as an average team across the board. Aaron Jones continues to see 60-75% to of the offensive snaps for the Packers, but has scored just four total touchdowns this season, with the offense struggling to sustain drives. 19th in drive success rate and 26th in points scored per drive this season after being near the top of the league in those categories for the better part of the last decade. That said, this will stand as one of the top rushing matchups the Packers will see all season, with a net-adjusted line yards metric sitting at an elite 4.96 against the Lions' defense allowing a robust 5.24 yards per running back carry to opposing backfields. A.J. Dillon should mix in for 10-12 to 12 carries of his own behind Jones, but has struggled to a 4.08 yards per carry mark this year. The Packers appear to be getting healthier at wide receiver heading into Week 9, with both Christian Watson and Alan Lazard returning to limited sessions this week. Lazard is the clear top dog amongst pass catchers, but he has yet to see double-digit targets in a game this season and has broken 100 yards only once. His red zone role remains elite, but the lack of volume is a tough sell at 6K. The truth of the matter with this matchup is the Packers should be able to win in any way they choose, but volume is expected to be low for everyone not named Aaron Jones, and even then, Jones has just two games all season with 20 or more running back opportunities. 
expect electric rookie Romeo Dobbs to line up opposite Lazard, with Sammy Watkins and Amari Rogers mixing in out of the slot in 11 personnel alignments. The Packers run above average 12 personnel rates, meaning any pass catcher outside of Lazard, Jones, and Dobbs should be expected to see minimal volume. This brings us to Robert Tunyon. Tunyon saw his highest snap rate of the season in Week 8, which is likely a combination of the dearth of available pass catchers in that game and a continuing return to health following a lost season. His 25.5% targets per route run rate ranks 8th at the tight end position this season, with the low 58.3% route participation rate holding down his fantasy value. As in, once he starts seeing more regular snaps, his upside should come more fully into play, which we might be seeing. Still a lot of uncertainty here, but it's at least worth considering his lofty targets per route run rate as something that could bring upside to the table once his snaps increase. How Detroit will try to win The Lions have a ton of moving parts from last week to this, with TJ Hawkinson shipped off to division rival Minnesota for future second and third round picks, Josh Reynolds downgraded from limited to DNP on Thursday, DeAndre Swift's health in question, and DJ Chark on IR. As in, we could see the primary skill position players against the Packers be Amon Ross St. Brown, Jamal Williams in a modest role, Khalif Raymond, Tom Kennedy, and rookie tight end James Mitchell. If you don't know who that is, you'll know soon enough, I promise. What we do know is that the Lions rank just below the Packers in PROE at 23rd in the league, but have shown us they are willing to dial up the aerial aggression if forced to do so. Basically, this team is still fighting tooth and nail to win ballgames through both injuries and a relative lack of offensive firepower. Their defense has been a liability all season, allowing the most points per game by a wide margin, 5.1 points per game more than the 31st ranked Chargers, which is absolutely absurd, which has routinely led to negative game scripts this season. Lions lead back DeAndre Swift has played only three full games through eight weeks and told reporters following week eight that he still wasn't 100% healthy. He played a modest 55% of the offensive snaps last week and handled only five carries and five targets. In total, Swift has only one game all season with more than 11 running back opportunities, which came all the way back in week one against the Eagles. I would expect a similarly small workload should he play, with Jamal Williams and Craig Reynolds on hand to share the load should he miss. This brings us to Williams, who has maxed out at only a 50% snap rate this season, even with Swift missing significant time, meaning we can't pencil him in for more than 15 to 18 running back opportunities in everything but the most positive of game environments. While we're here, the Lions have fed their running backs only 42 total targets through seven games played, which for comparison, is the same number as the Cleveland Browns. The pure rushing matchup yields an elite 5.13 net adjusted line yards metric, which will be one of the most lopsided matchups you will see all season. Things get a bit interesting through the passing game, with injuries and roster shakeups condensing the expected target share. Late week downgrades are never a good sign for skill position players' availability, and Josh Reynolds was downgraded from limited to DNP on Thursday. That places his status in doubt as the weekend approaches and could leave the Lions with a pass-catching core consisting of Amon Ross St. Brown, Khalif Raymond, Tom Kennedy, Brock Wright, who has a concussion, and rookie tight end James Mitchell. There have been three tight ends over the previous 10 seasons to post an ADOT of 10 or more yards and carry a targets per route run rate over three in college, Luke Musgrave, Kyle Pitts, and James Mitchell. His athleticism metrics are about league average, but that kind of college production is difficult to ignore. Without attempting to read too far into the happenings of the Lions, it makes the most sense that the team moved on from Hawkinson as he approaches contract negotiations because of what they feel they have in Mitchell. 
As for this week, it's difficult to expect him to immediately step in and set the world on fire, but there's an interesting case to be made for a min-price tight end on an offense starved for pass-catching playmakers, particularly considering the state of the tight end position this week. As for the volume hog Amon Ross St. Brown, he should see a good bit of the hyper-aggressive Razul Douglas over the middle of the field. Furthering the case for a boost to St. Brown's expected volume this week is a prevent Packers defense that has forced the sixth lowest defensive A dot this season, primarily playing off and prevent style zone coverages. St. Brown set the league on notice against zone coverage last season, finishing the year with an immaculate 85.5% reception rate against the coverage scheme. Likeliest Game Flow The driving force of the ultimate game environment is highly likely to be the Lions here, as the team with both the widest range of potential outcomes and the one likeliest to dial up aggression, which may or may not be a good thing considering the Lions were sellers at the trade deadline, moving off from TJ Hawkinson in the final year of his rookie contract, fifth-year option eligible. That said, it is fair to expect little change in the way Detroit approaches games, which means a game plan focused on the run and slowing things down in the first half before adapting to the game environment in the second half. That has led to multiple games of increased pace and aerial aggression later in games this season. The good news is the Lions play with pace for the entirety of games, meaning any game they are involved in could develop into a slate-wrecking shootout under the right conditions. Whether or not the Packers present them with the right conditions remains to be seen, leaving this game environment with one of the widest range of potential outcomes on the slate. Raiders at Jaguars. Kickoff Sunday, November 6th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under. 48. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. This matchup features two teams likely to be in rough shape this week and whose seasons may be at a breaking point. Jacksonville is playing without a week off after a game in London last Sunday. Las Vegas is playing its second consecutive game on the East Coast. Both offenses are middle of the pack in tempo, pass rate, and efficiency. How Las Vegas will try to win. The Raiders' offense was absolutely embarrassed and exposed in their 24-0 loss last week to the Saints. They managed only 183 total yards of offense on 56 plays, good for 3.3 yards per play. For comparison's sake, on the season, the Steelers are worst in the NFL with an average 4.7 yards per play. The Raiders' offense had averaged 33 points per game in their prior three games, however, so this performance could have just been a dud, which every NFL team has from time to time, or there could be some other factors that come into play. First, the Saints had played on Thursday night in Week 7, giving them three extra days of rest and prep over the Raiders, while the Raiders were traveling across the country from the West Coast and playing a game in the early window of Sunday games for only the second time all season. Second, the Raiders' game planning likely had some hiccups due to personnel issues. Darren Waller had practiced all week but was ruled out Sunday morning. Devontae Adams missed practice on Thursday and Friday last week due to an illness. Those are two integral parts of the Raiders' offense. While there's no way to know for sure what effect those situations had on the team, it certainly doesn't help if you plan to have a weapon like Waller back on the field and then lose him, and your top receiving option is not present to get reps and to work through the game plan and potentially still recovering from an illness on game day. Whatever happened, the Raiders need to correct things quickly if they want to turn around their season as they currently sit with a 2-5 record. This week, they face a Jaguars defense that has been inconsistent. After looking like a stout run defense to start the season, they have softened somewhat of late, most notably allowing the Giants to run for 236 yards against them in Week 7. After abandoning the run early in the game and having a passing attack that looked completely out of sync, we should expect the Raiders to refocus their game plan around PFF's number 2 graded running game. 
We should expect Devontae Adams to be a centerpiece of the Raiders' offensive attack with a full week of practice and coming off his worst game since week 3 of 2015. The Raiders had given the ball through targets or carries to one of Adams or Jacobs on 33 plays in each of their previous two games, which amounted to 60% of their total offensive plays, prior to giving them only 20 opportunities against the Saints, or 36% of their offensive plays. It is clear from a game plan perspective, we should expect heavy doses of Jacobs as a runner and on screen passes and swing passes out of the backfield, as well as plays designed for Adams, who has not received double-digit targets in a game since week four. How Jacksonville will try to win. Jacksonville started the season hot, with a close loss to Washington, followed by dominant victories over the Colts and Chargers. Since then, they have lost five straight games. While the current losing streak has been painful, it is encouraging that the Jaguars have consistently been competitive throughout, leading in the fourth quarter of their last four games and taking an early 14-0 lead on the Eagles in Week 4 before Philadelphia took control. Since just before the trade of James Robinson, the Jaguars handed the keys to the backfield to Travis Etienne, and he has looked tremendous in his bell cow role, averaging 7.1 yards per carry over the last two weeks, with over 100 rushing yards in both games. Sophomore quarterback Trevor Lawrence has been up and down this season, showing flashes of his potential brilliance, while also having down games where he forces too much and makes some errors. The Raiders' defense has been bad. Through seven games, they have given up at least 20 points in every game with only one game right at 20 points, and the other six all ranging from 23 to 30 points from their opponents. Especially troubling for the Raiders is the fact that they have struggled so much despite only facing one opponent, Kansas City, who ranks in the top half of the NFL in offensive DVOA. Jacksonville's offense will actually be the second highest ranked offense that the Raiders have faced this season. That's a good thing for an offense that has failed to score 20 points in three of their last four games and is playing on a short week after traveling back from their game in London. The Jaguars' offense should once again have a heavy focus on Travis Etienne, with an emphasis on using him in the run game and pass game, as well as leveraging the athleticism of Trevor Lawrence to open things up down the field. The Jaguars have PFF's fourth-graded pass-blocking offensive line and should be able to give Lawrence plenty of time to throw. This will be important, as Lawrence has failed to throw for over 200 yards against the strong pass rushes of the Eagles, Broncos, and Colts, while averaging 274 passing yards per game in his five other games. The Jaguars' passing game attacks all levels of the field, with underneath, intermediate, and downfield concepts all being used at different times and at relatively flat target distribution between Etienne, tight end Evan Ingram, and their top three wide receivers. It is worth noting that Lawrence has attempted 30-plus pass attempts in six of his eight games, with a rainstorm in Philadelphia and a game where the Jaguars ran all over the Colts, being the only times his volume dipped. After starting the season on fire, with an 8-2 touchdown-to-interception ratio through his first four games, Lawrence has only two touchdown passes with four interceptions in his last four games. Likeliest Game Flow As we try to explore the likely game flows and scoring range for this game, we look for trends and matchups that stand out. The Jaguars, despite their record, have been competitive in every game and are playing at home. Their six losses have all been by one score, and there have only been two instances all season of a team in a Jaguars game scoring 30-plus points. The Raiders had a very similar profile, prior to last week's big loss to the Saints, through their first six games, as they had four losses that were all by six points or less, and two wins, both of which they scored 30 points in. Putting this all together, from the body of work for the season, we can see that both teams are unlikely to get blown out, as that has happened only once in their combined 11 losses. Neither of these teams has a high likelihood of a dominant defensive performance, or truly explosive offensive performance, that would be required for a route in either direction. 
Both teams are middle of the pack in pace of play, pass rate, and offensive efficiency, which shows us that these teams should play a relatively predictable style of game and have moderate offensive success without blowing the roof off. This game should have a relatively narrow expected range of outcomes distributed quite closely to the implied spread and total. A game with both teams in the 20s being decided near the end of the game is highly likely. The Colts at the Patriots kick off Sunday, November 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Hilo Jonathan Taylor missed practice on Wednesday, with head coach Frank Reich stating that he re-aggravated his ankle injury. Naheem Hines was dealt to Buffalo, and Zach Moss just joined the team after a trade deadline deal. Damian Harris, illness, and Devontae Parker, knee, missed practice Wednesday for the Patriots. The Colts have more moving pieces than just about any other team in the league when looking at their composition last week compared to this week. The Patriots are very clearly likeliest to lean on the ground game against a Colts defense seeding the second lowest adjusted line yards and sixth fewest yards per carry to opposing backfields. Not a ton to love here from a game environment likely to be fairly messy. How Indianapolis will try to win. Some might look to the 29-23 rush-to-pass ratio from the Colts in Sam Ellinger's first start and immediately assume their top-five pass rate is in jeopardy with Ellinger at quarterback. But the top-level numbers are missing key context, in my opinion. First off, the Colts currently rank fifth in the league with an overall pass rate of 64.67%. Next, the Colts currently hold the highest expected pass rate in the league at just under 68%. Finally, the Colts were never pushed by the Commanders, down 7-3 at halftime and ultimately losing on a last-second Taylor Heineke rushing score. Now consider that Jonathan Taylor reportedly re-aggravated his ankle injury last week, the Colts just fired their offensive coordinator, head coach Frank Reich still calls the plays, and Naheem Hines was shipped off to Buffalo for a package including Picks and Zach Moss, who joined the team on Wednesday following a trade deadline deal and we're left with multiple signs pointing towards a potential return to a pass-focused offense against the Patriots. The Colts have played at a top-10 pace of play this season, ranking 9th in overall pace of play and 9th in situation-neutral pace of play. As for personnel utilization, we've seen Reich utilize fluid personnel groupings dependent on matchup and game flow which typically has fluctuated between heavy 12 personnel usage in games where the Colts are allowed to stick to a more run-balanced approach, and heavy 11 personnel usage in games where they are playing from behind. For example, we saw an offense almost exclusively run from 11 personnel in a Week 7 loss to the Titans where they were down 13-0 at the half, whereas the Colts utilized 12 personnel over 30% of the time in a close game in Week 8. As alluded to above, this backfield could look different than we've grown accustomed to in Week 9, with Jonathan Taylor held out of practice on Wednesday, Naheem Hines no longer in town, and Zach Moss joining the team on Wednesday. As things currently stand, waiver darling Deion Jackson could be in line for a massive share of the backfield opportunities against a Patriots defense allowing just 18.4 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields, second fewest in the league. Even if Taylor plays, the matchup, 4.33 net adjusted line yards metric, and uncertainty surrounding his health are difficult to get overly excited about. Yet another sign pointing to a potential reversion to an aerially focused attack. 
Finally, Sam Ellinger should be a larger part of the rushing game plan than his Week 8 box score would lead us to believe, as four of his carries were brought back via penalty against the Commanders. With an additional week of practice heading the offense, and with Wright getting an additional week to incorporate the mobile quarterback into his game plan, I would expect to see more designed quarterback runs, more run-pass options, and more pre-snap motions against the Patriots. Considering both the matchup and expected game flow, Patriots favored by 5.5 points at home, it would make sense that we see an offense return to the heavier rates of 11 personnel, which means rookie wide receiver Alec Pierce should return to a near every down player after seeing 97% of the offensive snaps in Week 7 and just 57% in Week 8. The quarterback change did little to influence Michael Pittman's route and utilization in Week 8, finishing the game with 7 catches on 9 targets for just 53 yards. Pierce's connection was on full display as he led the team in yards on his modest snap rate, while Paris Campbell returned to earth with just two targets after seeing a combined 32 over his previous two games. The largest per-touch upside very clearly resides with Pierce, while Pittman will likely need elite volume to return a GPP-viable score. Finally, the running backs combined for just three targets on 23 Ellinger pass attempts a week ago which theoretically should remain rather static considering both the Patriots and Commanders generate pressure at top five rates, which Ellinger should counter with escapes from the pocket as a young and mobile quarterback as opposed to checking it down to running backs in the flat. How New England will try to win The Patriots rank in the bottom half of the league in overall pace of play, 27th, first half pace of play, 27th, situation neutral pace of play, 18th, pass rate over expectation, 23rd, overall pass rate, 25th, and points per game, 17th, but ranked 12th in points allowed per game, 20.4, 7th in drive success rate allowed, 68.3%, and ranked 14th in yards allowed per drive, 32.42, on defense. It's very clear how this team would like to try and win games, and it all starts with their defense. Leveraging an above-average defense, the Patriots have been able to run a slow offense with high rush rates and modest pass totals, 27th-ranked pass attempts per game at 29.5. That said, when they do pass with Mac Jones at quarterback, it has typically been a more downfield-oriented offense, with Jones checking in with the sixth-deepest average intended air yards value amongst qualified quarterbacks, 8.8, which includes Mitchell Trubisky with four starts. The problem for this matchup is that the Colts' 4-2-5 base nickel defense looks to take away those exact looks, playing man coverages at the 7th lowest rate in the league. Damian Harris missed practice on Wednesday with an illness, but I would tentatively expect him to suit up this weekend, which should return him to his 1B status after the emergence of Ramondre Stevenson. That role was good for 13 running back opportunities for Harris last week, compared to a solid 23 for Stevenson, including 7 catches on 7 targets. Expect those roles and opportunities spread to continue into Week 9, with Stevenson now the preferred option in this backfield. The pure rushing matchup yields a below-average 4.28 net adjusted line yards metric against a Colts defense seeding just 3.99 yards per running back carry this season. Volume should be here, and the ground should be the base of the offense this week, but the matchup is far from perfect. Things get a little interesting with the Patriots' pass game. Devontae Parker exited Week 8 with a knee injury after just one offensive snap, 
leaving the pass offense to run almost entirely through Jacoby Myers and Ramondre Stevenson as the two combined for 20 targets on 35 Mac Jones pass attempts. No other pass catcher saw more than four targets, with nine total pass catchers seeing at least one look. Considering the offense has transitioned back to a heavier 12 personnel utilization over the previous three games with the return of Jonu Smith to the lineup, I would tentatively expect one of the highest rates of 12 personnel utilization that we've seen from the Patriots this season here. Parker's absence would leave Jacoby Myers and Hunter Henry as the only near every down pass catchers, with Jonu Smith, Tyquan Thornton, Kendrick Byrne, and Nelson Aguilar mixing in behind the top two. As mentioned above, the matchup with a Colts nickel-based defense is likely to force the Patriots into the intermediate middle of the field, which lines up well with the areas of the field most used by Myers, Henry, and Stevenson. Basically, expect the Patriots to be forced to march the field and grind out points through long, sustained drives here, with field position largely dependent on what their defense can do to slow down Ellinger and the Colts. Likeliest Game Flow this game is likely to play to an ugly, grinded-out style game, with the Patriots able to control the tempo, flow, and environment with their defense. We saw what high pressure rates did to Ellinger in this Colts offense last week, and the Patriots actually rank higher in pressure rate than the Commanders do. The injuries and changing dynamics of the Colts offense are also not likely to do them any favors. On the other side of the game, the Colts' defense is allowing the second-lowest adjusted line yards on defense and just 3.99 yards per carry to opposing backfields, creating an environment where New England's offense finds themselves in a strength-on-strength matchup. Overall, there isn't a ton to like here from a game environment's perspective. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Bills at the Jets. Kick off Sunday, November 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 46. Game Overview. By Hilo. We shouldn't expect much to change for the Bills here, with an emphasis on improving with every possession, from their head coach to their quarterback, down to each special team's snap. We should expect the Bills' defense to control the environment here, with the ultimate flow likely up to the Jets to dictate, as in, both defenses are performing at an elite level, while we know the Bills are likely to have success offensively, leaving the ultimate flow over to the Jets to decide via what they are able to accomplish offensively. It is unlikely to go fully mentioned around the industry this week, but there is a viable path where the Jets are able to disrupt Allen enough to stop drives and keep this a low-scoring affair, something to consider at bare minimum. Defensive stalwarts Vaughn Miller, Matt Milano, and Jordan Poyer have yet to practice this week for the Bills. Corey Davis has yet to practice this week for the Jets as he attempts to come back from a knee injury. How Buffalo will try to win the Bills are one of the few teams that we can expect to take every offensive possession as a chance to improve and score points as they push towards the top overall playoff spot in the AFC. That's an important aspect to consider when you see they are favored by almost two full touchdowns this week against the Jets. For everything the Jets are not, we can be fairly certain their head coach, Robert Saleh, will have them prepared and ready to take on the AFC-leading Bills. The Bills continue to hold the top spot in pass rate over expectation and sit at 13th in overall pass rate at 61.98%, 
The Jets are turning heads, currently sitting at 5-3 off the backs of one of the league's top-performing defenses. The Jets currently rank 8th in both DVOA against the run and pass, and support one of the top cornerback trios in the league with Sauce Gardner, DJ Reed, and Michael Carter II. That said, we can expect the Bills to find success here because, well, they are the Bills. And they are awesome. Pair the league's most dynamic dual-threat quarterback with one of the top route runners, Stephon Diggs, one of the top deep threats, Gabe Davis, and an above-average tight end and slot-wide receiver play, Dawson Knox, Isaiah McKenzie, and Khalil Shakir, and you're left with a lot to cover on the football field. Not to mention Devin Singletary continues to defy the haters on his way to a top 18 yards per touch value. The team also traded for their pass-catching back, finally, landing Naheem Hines at the deadline, although unlikely to play a ton this week. Oh yeah, and they boast the league's top defense, so there's that minute detail as well. The backfield has devolved into a borderline workhorse situation, with Devin Singletary averaging 75.75% of the offensive snaps over the previous four games. While the team added Naheem Hines at the deadline this week, it is fair to expect another week or two of borderline workhorse usage out of Singletary, with Hines likeliest to impact the snap rate and production of rookie pass-catching specialist James Cook. The matchup on the ground is far from elite, combining to a below-average 4.23 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Jets defense holding opposing backfields to 4.05 yards per carry. And while we don't expect Hines to be fully up to speed, there is a chance that we see a slight dip in the routes run from Singletary, who currently has run the fifth most routes at the running back position. It's also worth noting that even through the elite share of the backfield opportunities, Singletary has scored over a modest 14.7 fantasy points just once this season. Finally, quarterback Josh Allen leads the team in rushing scores with two. The money is clearly made in the pass game with this team. Stephon Diggs' elite usage and route running skills have translated to the 7th highest targets per route run rate and 10th highest team target market share amongst qualified wide receivers, with the only knock to his game this season being a non-elite 84.1 route participation rate. Gabe Davis is the type of player that can win you a GPP, but can also sink a lineup, with a massive 15.8 ADOT, 4th in the league but low 15.8% targets per route run rate, 85th. His red zone target market share has also shrunk to just 6.9% this season. Behind the top two pass catchers, slot man Isaiah McKenzie and tight end Dawson Knox are matchup specialists that see volume ebb and flow from week to week. Each is capable of putting up massive scores due to the offense they play on, but volume is difficult to predict on a weekly basis. Finally, rookie Khalil Shakir rotates in primarily in the slot at modest rates, while wide receiver 5 Jake Camaro sees modest usage in a situational role. As discussed above, the matchup is not ideal, but that almost doesn't matter for the Bills. It is worth noting that Josh Allen holds PFF's top ranking when under pressure this season, which has been the biggest knock against his play over his career. That said, he is still prone to forcing the issue, which could become a defining factor against an aggressive defensive unit. How New York will try to win The Jets have been surprisingly aggressive on both sides of the ball this season, ranking third in overall pace of play, second in second half pace of play, tenth in first half pace of play, and twelfth in situation neutral pace of play. 
their defense has generated the third highest pressure rate, while their offense checks in around middle of the pack in pass rate over expectation. Although hit-or-miss game scripts have led to a ninth-ranked overall pass rate of 62.48%. The season-ending injury to Brees Hall was a large blow to how this team would like to operate, as his dynamic abilities in both the run game and pass game were able to overcome repeated stacked boxes. Hall saw the ninth-highest average defenders in the box this season. Expect the Bills to be able to maintain heavy boxes against Michael Carter until Zach Wilson shows he can beat them through the air. Finally, the Bills started the season playing almost exclusively from zone coverages, which has decreased through injuries to the secondary, almost counterintuitively. Still, the organic pressure they are able to generate up front without blitzing has mixed with above-average zone coverage schemes to hold opponents to the fewest points per game this season. The identity of the Jets starts with their defense and continues to their run game, which again took a significant hit with the injury to Brees Hall. The team brought in James Robinson on a week prior to the trade deadline to compensate for Hall's injury, who saw just 22% of the offensive snaps in Week 8 as his familiarity with the offense grows. I would tentatively expect James Robinson's role to grow slightly here, likely at the detriment to Ty Johnson's role. Overall, expect Michael Carter to continue to lead the backfield in snap rate and opportunities against an opponent holding opposing backfields to just 19.8 DK points per game. The rushing matchup yields a well-below-average 3.95 net-adjusted line yards metric. This game could ultimately fall onto Zach Wilson's shoulders this week, which is a scary proposition. Zach Wilson is PFF's lowest-graded quarterback when under pressure this season, like, way bad, and the Bills currently generate pressure at a rate almost 50% higher than their blitz rate. Starting wide receiver Corey Davis has yet to practice this week as he attempts to work his way back from a knee injury, while Elijah Moore played just 17% of the offensive snaps a week ago through audible frustration with the franchise. Moore was ultimately kept with the team through the trade deadline, but it's difficult to expect a massive snap share as he is clearly at ends with the organization. That left rookie Garrett Wilson, Denzel Mims, and tight end Tyler Conklin as the only players to see 75% or more of the offensive snaps, putting all others in the realm of, anything could happen, it's the NFL. Braxton Berrios has yet to play more than 56% of the offensive snaps in a game this season, although he is utilized at a high rate when on the field. There is a path to his snap rate increasing, which could open up value based on his low season-to-date route participation rate, 34.2%. Realistically, though, this is likely a situation where we should expect relative concentration amongst Wilson and Conklin. Likeliest Game Flow It's likeliest we see the Buffalo defense control the environment here potentially setting up additional possession for Josh Allen and the Bills, in addition to short field positions. That, when combined with the relatively difficult matchup for the Bills' offense, leads to fantasy value primarily derived through touchdowns for Bills' skill position players. As in, we can't accurately forecast volume outside of Stephon Diggs, and efficiency is even more difficult to project. That said, the Bills are projected to score more than four touchdowns here but finding where those touchdowns are likeliest to flow is a fool's errand outside of the elite red zone usage for Stephon Diggs. Summed up, expect the Bills to control the game with their defense, expect the Bills to score points, but expect it to be largely touchdown-driven variants that defines the fantasy utility from their offense. 
The Jets should be forced away from the ground sooner rather than later, which is a tough sell considering their quarterback is one of the league's worst quarterbacks when under pressure this season, and expect the Bills to bring some pressure. The final thought here is the pressure the Jets are likely to create against Josh Allen, coming into the game with the third highest pressure rate in the league. Josh Allen is elite, don't get me wrong, but pressure has been his Achilles heel for his entire career making it a possibility that the Jets are able to hang around for deeper into the game, which would sap most of the fantasy appeal from the game environment. The Vikings at the Commanders kick off Sunday, November 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 43.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Both teams have benefited from weak schedules to get to their current records. Taylor Heineke has made the entire Washington offense more stable and predictable than they were with Carson Wentz. The Minnesota passing offense will be the engine of this game, and the ability of this game to produce high scores hinges on if they are able to air it out early. Differing tempos from these teams, with Vikings pushing things and Washington slowing things down. How Minnesota will try to win. The Vikings are in control of the NFC North, with a 6-1 record and a three-game lead while also holding the head-to-head -head tiebreakers with their closest competition, Bears and Packers. They have benefited from a relatively weak schedule, as only two of their seven opponents so far this year currently have a winning record. This week, they face a Washington team that is 4-4 four and four and has won three straight games. The Vikings' offense has been consistent, scoring 23-plus points in every game this year except their Monday night football loss to the Eagles, who have one of the top defenses in football. The Vikings also just acquired another offensive weapon in TJ Hawkinson via trade, although it is hard to say how involved he will be in the offense in his first week on the team. From a philosophical standpoint, the Vikings in their first year under head coach Kevin O'Connell have turned up the pace and pass rate, as they rank 6th in both pass rate over expectation and situation-neutral pace of play. The shift in offensive focus has actually made the Vikings more efficient in their running game as well, as they rank 4th in rushing offense DVOA behind a running game led by Dalvin Cook and complemented by Alexander Madison. Staying true to O'Connell's background with the Rams, the Vikings play primarily out of 11 personnel, with three receivers, one running back, and one tight end. This week, the Vikings face a Washington defense that has not been exposed recently, mainly due to their lack of competition from opposing passing games. Their last five games were against three teams, Bears, Packers, and Titans, who all arguably rank bottom five in the NFL in receiving core talent, and two teams, Colts and Cowboys, with backup quarterbacks and run-heavy game plans. Prior to that, however, the Commanders had been torched through the air by the Jaguars, Lions, and Eagles to start the season. Most notable was the Eagles game when Jalen Hurts threw for 299 yards and three touchdowns in the first half. This commander's defense currently ranks second in the league in run defense DVOA, while ranking a pitiful 28th in pass defense. The commanders also just released talented quarterback William Jackson due to a lack of scheme fit due to Jackson's man coverage strengths and the commander's preference to play heavy zone coverage. Justin Jefferson has destroyed zone coverage this season, with the third highest PFF grade against zone among all NFL wide receivers. The result of all these data points suggests that the Vikings will be happy to continue or increase their tempo and pass-first approach against a very beatable opponent through the air. How Washington Will Try to Win 
The Commanders are surprisingly right in the playoff hunt thanks to an easier schedule as of late and a slight spark provided by Taylor Heineke taking over as the team's quarterback. Since his return, Terry McLaurin's target share has shot back up to 25%, where it was prior to this season, and the Washington passing game has been a bit more stable, giving up fewer sacks and turnovers. The Commanders have also recently let Antonio Gibson out of the doghouse, turning the backfield into a three-headed monster with Gibson, Brian Robinson, and J.D. McKissick. Robinson plays on early downs for between-the-tackles runs, McKissick plays on clear passing situations, and Gibson mixes in for everything in between. Washington's offensive approach has maintained throughout the season as a balanced run-pass split and a very slow tempo ranking 30th in the NFL in situation-neutral pace of play. Their offense has not been very efficient at any point this season, ranking bottom five in the league in both passing and rushing offense DVOA. While the team has won games recently, the offense has averaged only 14.5 points per game over the last six weeks. The Vikings' defense has not been great this season, but they are far from a pushover and will not be likely to give the Commanders much greater offensive efficiency than they've shown to date. The Commanders will almost certainly continue a slow-paced and conservative approach in this game as they try to replicate the scenarios which have led to their recent winning streak. Unfortunately for them, that plan likely won't work against an explosive Vikings offense. Likeliest Game Flow the Vikings are very likely to take control of this game, and it would be at least mildly surprising if that doesn't happen somewhat early in this game. The Commanders have a conservative offense and middling matchup, while the Vikings have an aggressive offense, explosive players, and a pass-funnel matchup that Justin Jefferson could absolutely destroy. Assuming the Vikings can build a lead, it will be interesting to see how quickly Washington abandons their plans and turns up the tempo and pass rate with Taylor Heineke under center. There were multiple games early in the season where the Commanders fell behind early, and the results were game totals of 50 and 63 points. Everything about the outcome of this game and the overall game flow will be dependent on the ability of the Vikings to successfully exploit a weak Commander's pass defense. If they are unable to do so, this game will likely play out similar to the last few Commanders games, a slow-paced game ending between 30 and 40 total points with a one-score outcome in either direction. If the Vikings' passing offense goes off, however, it could turn into a bit of a track meet as the Vikings have allowed several passing offenses to put up a lot of stats in comeback mode this season. The Seahawks at the Cardinals. Kick off Sunday, November 6th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 49.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. This game is a rematch of a 19-9 Seahawks win from just three weeks ago, and the over-under here is over 20 points higher than that game's result. The Cardinals' offense has looked rejuvenated with the return of DeAndre Hopkins and Rondale Moore moving into his slot role. The Seahawks' defense continues to improve and has given up only four touchdowns in the last three weeks. This game has huge NFC West implications, as a Seahawks win would put them squarely in the driver's seat and basically knock the Cardinals out of contention due to a three-game deficit and losing both head-to-head -head matchups. How Seattle will try to win The Seahawks have won four of their last five games, and their defense continues to improve while Geno Smith keeps impressing with his ability to keep them in games and make plays when needed. 
they have been a balanced offense that has beaten teams both on the ground and through the air, with Kenneth Walker emerging as the clear lead back on the team, who can grind out yards or explode for long runs. Lockett and Metcalf have been battling injuries but have yet to miss a game. Both are practicing this week, and we should expect closer to a full complement of snaps from each of them in Week 9, after they each played just under 70% of plays against the Giants. Seattle's pace of play is in the top half of the league, and they are top 10 in pass rate over expectation, as they've allowed Geno Smith to open his offense up when needed. We should expect a similarly balanced approach to what we saw in Week 6 against the Cardinals, but they may be more aggressive this week as the Cardinals' offense has looked much improved from the unit we saw in that game. Basically, the Seahawks' aggressiveness this season has matched the perceived threat of their opponent entering the game and as the game moves along. With the Cardinals' offense coming alive, a proactive approach with the passing game being used to open up running lanes for Kenneth Walker seems like a prudent move. Part of the recent improvement in the Seahawks' defense can be attributed to Seattle building early leads and letting their defense play from an advantageous position against more predictable opponents. A back-and-forth affair, or when Seattle falls behind, is when their defense has been most vulnerable, so we should expect the Seahawks' offense to come out swinging to try to take control of this game. How Arizona will try to win After a shaky stretch defensively, the Seahawks have given up only four offensive touchdowns in the last three weeks. One of those was a two-yard drive for the Giants after a Seahawks fumble deep in their own territory, and another was a garbage-time TD by the Chargers when the Seahawks were already up three scores. So basically, the Seahawks have given up only two touchdown-worthy offensive drives when the game mattered in the last three weeks. Impressive. Included in that stretch for the Seahawks' defense was a 19-9 win over the Cardinals, where Arizona couldn't get anything going and only had three offensive points, with a special teams touchdown providing the other scoring. However, the Cardinals did not have DeAndre Hopkins in that game, and the return of Hopkins has significantly sparked their offense over the last two weeks. After averaging only 18 offensive points in the first six games of the year, the Cardinals have averaged 27 offensive points over the last two weeks against the Saints and Vikings. Kyler Murray has looked more comfortable, and everyone on the team has appeared to be in roles better suited for them. If they hadn't lost Marquise Brown, this offense could really have taken off. The Cardinals are likely to continue their approach of spread offense and mixing up tempos. They have started playing somewhat faster again since Hopkins returned. The running game is not elite by any means, but using it to exploit holes in the defense opened by the spread nature of formations is a critical element of the Cardinals' attack. In the passing game, Hopkins and Rondale Moore appear to be the focal points and should combine for close to half the targets in most weeks, with Hopkins being used as a chess piece all over the field and focused on in the intermediate areas and Moore's role being focused on the short areas but also growing down the field as offense evolves. Zach Ertz and the Cardinals running backs get short dump-offs when nothing else is open, or the defense is playing soft, while Robbie Anderson and A.J. Green take turns running wind sprints on the perimeter. They combine for zero catches on four targets in Week 8. Seattle's defense is solid against both the run and the pass, but has also been beaten in both areas this season. That means we can expect a normal approach to this game from Arizona, with a much greater chance of offensive success now that they are playing at home and have more role clarity in their personnel. Likeliest Game Flow The flip side of the improved Seahawks defense discussion is the fact that they are playing in a dome this week, 
and gave up 84 combined points in their two games in domes this year against the Lions and Saints. The Cardinals' defense has also been solid this season, but gave up 34 points in each of the last two weeks and is facing a Seahawks team with several explosive players for the second time this season. Given those realities, it does make sense that the over-under for this game is 21 points higher than the total these teams combined for in Week 6. The likeliest outcome for this game is that it stays close throughout, with both teams being able to move the ball, but both defenses also providing enough resistance to keep anyone from pulling away. The Seahawks are more of an explosive team, with Metcalf, Lockett, and Walker all possessing the ability to break massive plays that change a game in an instant, and they also have a defense that has performed better recently. This makes it more likely that the Seahawks would be the team to take control and build more than a one-score lead in the first couple of quarters of the game. In any regard, the most likely outcome is a close game that is played to the mid-20s, with a shootout possibility occurring if both teams are able to trade blows late when they start to turn up their aggressiveness and tempo. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Rams at the Buccaneers kick off Sunday, November 6th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 42.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson For better or worse, get ready to watch Tom Brady and Matthew Stafford throw the ball a lot. These teams played twice last season, combining for 58 and 57 points in the respective games, with the Rams winning both games. These teams have a combined 6-9 and nine record, and this game has a total of only 42.5, which would have shocked pretty much anyone back in August. Cooper Cup's injury status will have a huge effect on how this game plays out and the ability of the Rams to pose a threat. How Los Angeles will try to win The Rams continue to be a shell of themselves from last year, failing to score over 20 points for the fifth time this season in Week 8 against the 49ers despite coming out of a bye and getting healthier. The Rams' defense has been adequate, but not dominant this season, and the offense hasn't been able to separate on pretty much anyone. Their core issues are their inability to run the ball and their inability to protect Matthew Stafford against competent pass rushes. Also, they have become pretty predictable in the passing game, as their heavy focus on Cooper Cup and inability to establish other explosive threats keeps them from putting any fear in any defenses. Entering this week, the Rams are in a tough spot from a game plan perspective. Their backfield is an absolute shambles and is completely unpredictable. Ronnie Rivers, who started and played the most snaps for them last week, coming out of the bye, with little success. Daryl Henderson has consistently had a role of some sort, but either isn't fully healthy or has fallen out of favor as he's had double-digit touches just twice in their last five games. Cam Akers may be back with the team this week after not being traded, but who knows in what capacity. There has been talk about rookie Kyron Williams sparking things in his return from IR, but this is a fifth-round rookie who hasn't played in months. He's not likely to immediately change things for them. Overall, the Rams' offense ranks 31st in the NFL in both yards per carry and rushing yards per game. This inability to run the ball is going to be a huge problem this week. 
They clearly don't know who to run the ball with, and their scheme and blocking haven't been getting things done either. The Bucks' run defense is not as good as years past, but it is not so bad that a bad running game is going to all of a sudden become strong because of the matchup. The status of Cooper Cup will ultimately determine the approach of the Rams in this game. As discussed in past weeks, the Rams are playing at a sloth-like pace this season after playing an up-tempo game in 2021. This methodical approach will likely continue this week, and the Rams will rely heavily on their passing game if Cup is able to play and is not significantly limited. However, if Cup is out, then the potential of this Rams offense will be severely limited, and they may have no choice but to try to lean on their running game early in the hopes of keeping the game low-scoring and squeaking out a victory in the fourth quarter. How Tampa Bay Will Try to Win The Bucks have some extra time to prepare heading into this week after losing to the Ravens on Thursday night in Week 8. That loss was once again filled with some self-inflicted blunders, struggles to protect the quarterback, and uncharacteristic inefficiency. Somehow, the Bucks are only a game out of first place in their division, and can still right the ship if they figure some things out and return their offense to its past efficiency. They don't even have to be last year's Bucks to win the NFC South. They probably just need to get back to being an above-average team. The Bucks, like the Rams, have had no semblance of a running game this season, and rank dead last in the NFL in yards per carry and rushing yards per game. This week, they face a Rams defense that ranks fourth in the NFL in rushing defense DVOA, and second in the NFL in run defense PFF grade. The path of least resistance is pretty clear in this matchup, as the Bucks have been unable to run the ball this season, and the Rams have shut down the run very effectively this season. Also, the Bucks' biggest issue in their passing game has been an inability to provide adequate time for Tom Brady to make on-target throws. This week, they face a Rams defense that currently ranks 31st in the league in pressure rate, pressuring the QB on only 13.4% of pass attempts this season, and ranks dead last in hurries and knockdowns. The result should be a clear focus on the passing game, with the expectation of Brady staying clean in the pocket for once. While the Bucks' passing game frustrations have been well documented in recent weeks, extra preparation time leading up to this game, a familiar opponent who Brady threw for 380 yards per game against in two games last season, and a clear pass-funnel situation all lead me to believe the Bucks will attempt to get things right this week. Likeliest Game Flow Due to the nature of both offenses likely being unable to run the ball, this game sets up for a lot of possessions and or a lot of plays. These respective passing games recently have not been what they used to be, so a spike in passing volume doesn't guarantee offensive success and scoring here. The outlook of this game largely depends on Cooper Cup's health and the Bucks' ability to get on the same page. If the Bucks' offense clicks, they could finally have that game where the light bulb comes on and they throw it all over the yard. The Rams are so dependent on Cup that they have a greater risk of offensive failure here. However, given the fact that the Rams ended the Bucks' 2021 season and beat them twice last year, as well as the fact we know the Bucks are not afraid to keep pouring it on when they build a lead, it is entirely possible that the Bucks could run away with this one and fully embarrass the Rams. 
Ultimately, this game has a very wide range of outcomes, with an ugly game like the 14-12 Bucks loss to the Packers early this season being possible, or a high-scoring affair breaking out also being possible thanks to heavy play volume and pass-funnel situations on both sides.